Welcome back, Crimeaholics. It's your host, Holly, and I am back today with another Missing Monday. For those that are new to the podcast, first off, welcome to our podcast. Missing Mondays is a segment that was created to help keep missing persons' name and information in the media the best we can and to hopefully help aid in their return home. 90,000 people are missing in the U.S. at any given time. And even though some are found alive or deceased, the majority are still missing today. With Missing Mondays, we always want the families of those missing to rest assured that their loved one has not been forgotten. We want to continue to say their names and share their information and pictures in hopes that someone that knows something will come forward. A lot of times when the hype of these missing persons cases dies down, the families often feel forgotten or that their loved one has been forgotten. But to us at Crimeaholics and all of you guys, our listeners, their loved one matters and we want to give them a permanent spotlight on our platform to remember them and to share their information. Today, I do have an update on a Missing Monday case that I covered on July 11th, 2022. Michael Chambers had gone missing in 2017. On November 30th of last year, the Raines County Sheriff's Office responded to a call of possible human remains in a wooded area just off U.S. Highway 276 east of the city, East Tawakani in Texas. After they were identified as human, their remains were sent to the University of North Texas Center for Human Identification to be examined, and this is where they were able to identify that the remains belonged to Michael Chambers. Earlier this month, this information was released to the public along with the statement that this is an open investigation, and the Hunt County Sheriff's Office are still diligently investigating this case. There has been no further information that has been released, and when I see more details come out, I will keep you guys posted. In the meantime, let's keep his family in your thoughts and prayers as they process this information and send all good thoughts and good juju to the sheriff's department as they continue to work on his case. I will link the original episode on Michael in the description of this one, so if you haven't heard that one, you can catch up on it. Okay, so today's case is one that has been unsolved for far too long. Unfortunately, there is a huge possibility that the answers died alongside a person of interest in this case. Today, we will be discussing the case of missing bride-to-be Nikki McCowan. Marilyn Renee Nicole McCowan went by the name of Nikki, so that is what I'm going to refer to her as. She grew up in Richmond, Indiana, and was one of 10 children. And she was 28 years old in the summer of 2001 and was living out the happiest days of her life. On July 22, 2001, Nikki was just three weeks away from her wedding to a man by the name of Bobby Webster. She was so excited to become his wife, and the two had actually dated in high school but split up after Bobby graduated high school and went off to California in 1991. 
Nikki, however, moved on and started dating another man by the name of Stephen Johnston. And at the age of 19 years old, Nikki and Stephen had a child, which was a baby girl that they named Peyton. In a Crime Watch Daily interview, Stephen talks about his relationship with Nikki and how he has so many regrets with it. He states that the reason the two of them split up was due to how he treated her. He says that through their relationship, he cheated on her, he was abusive, and ultimately, Nikki had enough and left him. But the two continued to co-parent sweet Peyton, and Nikki was a hard-working mother. She wanted her baby girl to have the best upbringing, and she did whatever she could to provide for her. Nikki began working at a correctional facility in Dayton, Ohio, where she started out as a prison guard, but eventually worked her way up to be the head accountant at the prison. Her family said that Nikki was just that type of woman. She would start something and then excel at whatever it was. Her fiance said that she was incredibly strong-willed and anything that she set her mind to, she did it. While working hard to provide for her daughter, Nikki also had goals and dreams of her own. She was attending college working towards her bachelor's in criminal justice. Nikki, without a doubt, would have been a crimeaholic because she absolutely loved true crime. She loved watching the shows like Dateline, Unsolved Mysteries, and if podcasts were a big thing back in 2001, Nikki for sure would have listened to true crime podcasts too. She had dreams of being an FBI agent or a U.S. Marshal. In 1998, Bobby Webster moved back to Indiana, and he and Nikki reconnected almost immediately and picked up where they left off with their relationship. Finally, he proposed to Nikki, which she, of course, said yes, and they set the date for August 18th, 2001. Nikki's parents and all of her siblings were so excited for their wedding and so excited that Nikki finally got her Prince Charming back. Bobby was Nikki's first love, and even though he briefly moved away for a short stint, she never forgot about him. So to have him back, she was just so incredibly happy and was a beaming bride-to-be. On Sunday, July 22, 2001, Bobby and Nikki had some wedding prep things they each had planned to take care of. Bobby and his cousin had planned to go to a tuxedo shop, and Nikki had plans to do her laundry at a laundromat and do other various things that she needed to get done before the big day. Later that evening, Nikki and Bobby had planned to meet back up at their place to sit down and begin addressing the wedding invitations. Around noon on that day, Nikki stopped off at her parents' house and dropped off Peyton to hang out there while she ran up the road to the laundromat. A few hours later, Nikki went back to her parents' house while the laundry was in the dryer. While there, it was very apparent that Nikki's attitude had changed. There was something that had caused her to be upset, and you could physically see that whatever it was, it was really bothering her. She eventually tells her mom that there were a few men up at the laundromat that were bothering her. Nikki's mother, Barbara, told her to just go down, get her stuff, and bring it back to her house to finish the laundry there. Nikki told her mom that it was okay, she'd be fine, and she walked out the door to go tend to the laundry once more. 
Before leaving, she told her mom that she would be back. Barbara replied with an okay and watched as her daughter got in the car and drove away, not realizing that that would be the last time she ever saw her. Around 4.30 p.m. when Bobby returned to the house that he shared with Nikki, he found that she wasn't there yet. He noticed that the laundry basket and clothes weren't there either, so he just assumed that Nikki hadn't been back to the house yet. He figured that he beat her home and that she was chatting with her family over at her mom's house. But come 6.30 p.m. and no sign of Nikki and not even a call from her, he started to get worried. Bobby started to call Nikki's family to ask if they had seen her or if she was with them. And to his surprise, she wasn't with anyone in the family. And her family was surprised to hear that she wasn't back at home with him. When Nikki's sister Michelle arrived at her other sister Tammy's house, she was also asked if she had seen or heard from Nikki, which she hadn't, and she told him that she was likely off shopping or something along those lines. When Nikki didn't show up to pick up Peyton from her mother's house, Barbara had just assumed that Nikki was at work. But as the minutes ticked by, everyone continued to get increasingly worried. Everything in Bobby and Nikki's home was in its place. It appeared that she hadn't taken anything beyond the laundry that she intended on washing. So it wasn't like she had planned to run off. Around 10 p.m., Nikki's family had enough, and they were sick with worry and thought that maybe Nikki had gotten into a car accident along the way to Dayton. They jumped in a car and began driving from Richmond to Dayton to see if they can find her stranded somewhere. And you have to remember that this is in 2001. Cell phones weren't in every single person's hand like they are today. Nikki didn't have a cell phone, so it wasn't like she could call for help to family if something had gone wrong. But that trip to Dayton and back found no sign of Nikki. By 2 a.m., everyone was extremely concerned, and it was Nikki's father who insisted they went to the police to file a missing persons report. Barbara recalls in an interview that when he said that they needed to get the police involved, she knew that something was terribly wrong. Nikki's father always said that of all his children, Nikki was the child that could handle anything that ever happened to her. So the fact that she wasn't back meant something bad must have happened. The following day, with the missing persons report having been filed in the early morning hours, Nikki's family continued to search for her. The police, however, weren't overly concerned and felt like she would likely turn up. A detective named Bradley Burner from the Richmond Police Department said that there had been no indicators that she was in any kind of trouble. Nobody had called to report anything suspicious or any trouble that they had witnessed. So they felt like wherever Nikki was, she would eventually turn up. It was Nikki's family who began doing their search for her, and it was late in the afternoon that they were able to locate surveillance footage from a deli near the laundromat. On the video, you can see Nikki walk into the deli and grab a Coke or something to drink. She then approaches the cash register and pays for her drink before walking out. Nothing seemed out of the ordinary. She didn't seem worried or stressed. It didn't appear that anyone was following her. 
And just outside of the window that can also be seen in the video, you can see Nikki's car that she gets into and drives away. And it doesn't look like there's any cars that follow her outside of the parking lot. So this once more leads the police to believe that nothing was wrong and that she likely would just resurface. When the police learned about the men that were harassing Nikki at the laundromat, they went there and began speaking with people trying to figure out if anyone had seen her or saw what had happened. Nobody recalled seeing her or having seen any altercations that took place there. And once more, the police were leaning towards the theory that Nikki just ran off. They speculated that perhaps Nikki and her fiancé Bobby had gotten into some sort of argument and that she voluntarily ran off to blow off steam and get away from him. And that perhaps Nikki was actually getting cold feet and rethinking the wedding. When the police presented this theory to her family, they disagreed. They didn't think for a second that Nikki would just run off and disappear for a time. Not only was that not in her character to do something like that, but she would never just leave Peyton behind. There was just no way. And of course, Nikki was ecstatic about her upcoming wedding. She wanted that wedding so bad, and everything was lining up perfectly within her life. She had no reason to run off. Once more, with the police at this point not being overly concerned, it was her family again trying to take matters into their own hands. They decided to check in with Nikki's work in Dayton, Ohio, to see if she had shown up for work. Nikki not only loved where she worked, but she was an incredible employee that rarely missed work unless she absolutely had to. And of course, if something came up and she had to miss work, she would call in letting them know. Nikki's sister Michelle went into her work and asked if Nikki had shown up that day, and they told her that unfortunately, Nikki wasn't there either. This was a complete gut punch to her sister and the entire family. They were trying so hard to hold on to hope that this was somehow a major misunderstanding or that Nikki had done something completely out of character and actually ran off. But when they heard that she wasn't there, this was the final straw. They no longer could hold on to hope. They knew that this was extremely bad. Her family once more wasted no time and started doing whatever they could to search for her. They began knocking on doors to ask if anyone had seen her. They went to all of the neighborhoods around the laundromat, as well as places they thought that she may have gone. They passed out flyers to anyone they passed by and just did whatever they could to get her case attention. When the authorities learned that Nikki didn't show up for work, this is when they really started to grind with finding her as well. Though they were still running with the theory that she voluntarily left, they did begin checking with hotels to see if maybe she had checked in somewhere to stay for a few days. They also went and knocked on doors in the neighborhood that surrounded the laundromat to talk with anybody who frequently went there to see if they had heard or seen anything. They also had detectives posted up at the laundromat to stop and question anyone who came in. But they came up empty-handed, and nobody had seen her on that day. 
They also began looking into her bank accounts to see if she made any purchases in the days after she had gone missing. Surely, if their theory of her running off was true, she would have stopped to have made a purchase somewhere or at least had to have purchased gas at some point, seeing how her car was also missing. But all of her accounts remained untouched. The police also did aerial searches of Richmond in an attempt to locate her car, but this led nowhere. As the days continued to tick by, the police started to question their theory, and they shifted their focus onto someone who was closest to Nikki. In the days after Nikki's disappearance, many people, including the authorities after they caught wind of it, thought that some of the things that Bobby was doing was suspicious. Apparently, the day after she went missing, Bobby had called the college that Nikki had been attending and wanted to get her unused tuition money back. Then on Wednesday, three days after Nikki went missing, Bobby had gone to the jewelry store to attempt to sell back their rings. Now, I will say there is differing stories on this ring situation. In interviews with multiple outlets, authorities involved stated that Bobby had taken the rings back to try and sell them back to the jeweler. But according to him, the rings were on layaway. He hadn't tried to sell them back. He was just hoping to get the deposit back on them. And on top of the call to the college, the stop at the jeweler, Bobby also did one more thing that raised a lot of eyebrows. He got a hold of the wedding venue that he and Nikki had reserved for their big day and had canceled their reservation and received their deposit back. Naturally, all of this looks suspicious, and I agree. Initially, when I started looking into this case, I instantly thought that this entire thing was really weird and suspicious. It almost seemed like he knew that Nikki wasn't coming back, so he was trying to get any and all money that he could. But after listening to Bobby explain this, I guess I can see what his thought process possibly was at that time. According to Bobby, he wasn't trying to cancel the wedding at all. He still very much wanted the wedding to take place. He claims that the reason he got the money back on the various things was so that he could purchase a cell phone so he could always be available whenever someone needed him during this investigation. He wanted to have a phone handy in case there was a major break in the case or they found Nikki. But naturally, all of this really upset a lot of people. And I think from the interviews I saw, Nikki's sisters seemed to really feel betrayed by this and felt like there was a lot more to the story than what Bobby was letting on. Bobby states that the last thing on his mind was the wedding. At this point in time, Nikki had been missing for several days. Who knows what could have happened to her? And had she shown up right then and there, they likely would have had to delay the wedding anyway to work through whatever was going on. Again, I can see this reasoning and the story about wanting to purchase a cell phone being legit. But the authorities weren't so sure and his actions didn't sit well with them. So they asked Bobby if he would come in for a polygraph test, and he agreed. The questions that they asked him all revolved around whether he knew anything about Nikki's disappearance or if he was involved, all of which he answered no. 
But according to the polygraph operator, Bobby was not telling the truth. And it was said that he, quote, blew the needle off the charts with how bad he was being deceptive. Bobby states that the questions were more about whether he felt responsible. He said, quote, who wouldn't feel responsible for not being able to protect their woman when she was in a position where she needed help, end quote. And as we know, polygraph tests are not admissible in court because they're not always reliable. And though the authorities felt some kind of way about Bobby, not only because of the failed polygraph test, but the way that he was acting and some of his behaviors, they still couldn't arrest him because they didn't have any kind of physical evidence proving that she was killed or even that he was involved in her going missing. So he was just listed as a person of interest, and the authorities had to continue working on the case and move on. Now, I don't want to say my opinion on this because I fully want you guys to form your own about it, but I am interested in hearing your thoughts and opinions about this. Bobby has always maintained his innocence and held firm that he was not involved in her disappearance in any kind of way. He also was extremely frustrated with the fact that the authorities heavily focused on him because he felt like that time and energy could have been used elsewhere. And I see both sides here. Typically, in cases of murders or disappearances, you have to look at the people who are closest to them because they are often involved. So they have to exhaust every possibility to make sure it wasn't that person. But I can also see how if you're an innocent man, this would be frustrating because you're worried about your fiance. As the weeks went by, members of Nikki's family were also getting upset with the authorities. They felt like not much was being done. They felt like time was being wasted in various areas. And overall, they just felt like they weren't doing their jobs. But the authorities really didn't have much to go off of, and they seemed to be trying to work the case however they could with what little information they had. I know it can be so frustrating for families when the authorities seem like they aren't doing much or they're not being told what is being done, but after watching interviews with some of the detectives involved, I will say it did seem like they were trying. They just weren't sure what to do given with little information they had. It did get to a point, though, that Nikki's family started taking matters into their own hands once more and doing their own searches and knocking on doors again. They were desperate and frantic to find her that when they got a tip that she was at XYZ house or at this place, they would rush there and begin pounding on the door. A couple of Nikki's brothers were actually arrested during their efforts to find their sister. And this absolutely hurts my heart that it escalated to this point for her family. They just wanted to find Nikki so bad that they stepped on toes in their efforts. But her mother in an interview said that she does not apologize for stepping on people's toes while searching for her daughter. And honestly, that's the type of people that I want to search for me if I were ever to go missing. People who were desperate for answers, demanding answers, and doing everything they could in their power to find me. Those are the people that you want in your corner. As time went on, Nikki's family cut off communication with Nikki's fiance, Bobby. And I listened to an interview with Nikki's daughter, and she had stated that a lot of her family felt like he was responsible. 
So not only were the police thinking this was a possibility, Nikki's family were as well. Nikki's daughter Peyton, however, has kept a relationship with Bobby over the years. In 2018, Peyton did an interview with another podcast talking about her mom's case. She said that her family is split on whether they think Bobby is involved, but Peyton says she doesn't want to say he's involved because she truly doesn't know. From that interview, it seems like she almost leans towards him not being involved. She stated that while she does think some of the things he did was odd and somewhat fishy, she and Bobby have talked about it. And I think he's come to terms with seeing how some of his behaviors may have seemed off to a lot of people. But either way, Bobby and Peyton have a relationship still, despite some of her family still being hesitant about him. The search for Nikki or anything connecting to her would go on for three and a half months before the authorities finally got a break in the case. On November 3rd, 2001, after nearly four months of looking for 28-year-old Nikki McCowan, there was finally a break that they so desperately needed. The Montgomery County Sheriff's Department called the Richmond PD to let them know that they found Nikki's car in Dayton, Ohio. The vehicle was found in an apartment complex called the Meadows of Catalpa. The Richmond authorities rushed to Dayton with the hopes that they were finally going to solve this mysterious disappearance. When they looked inside the car, the first thing that they noticed was the laundry basket full of folded clothing, as if Nikki had left the laundromat and then vanished. Beyond the basket of clothes inside the car, they couldn't see anything right off the bat, but of course they towed the car back to Richmond to be processed. They did a top-to-bottom thorough sweep of the car for any kind of clues, including fingerprints, hair, fibers, blood, you name it, they looked for it. And sadly, there was not a trace of anything that was found inside that car. No fingerprints that were unusual, no ounce of blood, no physical sign of a struggle, nothing. This was a complete letdown because everyone felt that if they could just find Nikki's car, that it would hold some sort of clues or some sort of answers. And for there to be absolutely nothing inside that car other than a basket of laundry was just a major blow. And even though the car itself didn't have any clues, the area in which it was found actually had some significance. The apartment complex where the car was found was where Nikki's ex and the father of her daughter, Peyton, lived. One thing that stuck out to authorities about the car was that the driver's seat wasn't in an unusual position for Nikki. It wasn't pushed back to accommodate someone larger. It was where they would expect it to be if Nikki was the last one to drive it, or at least someone of her size. So this made them believe that maybe Nikki was the last one to drive it after all. And since it was found in the parking lot of her ex and the father of her child, maybe she had drove over there for a reason. So Stephen jumped up on the list as a person of interest in this case. They brought him in for questioning and he cooperated fully. He agreed to take a polygraph test and he passed that with flying colors. 
The detectives working the case did everything within their power to look into Stephen and find if he had somehow been involved, but ultimately they couldn't find a connection other than her car being at his apartment complex and he was ruled out. But while trying to connect Stephen to the case, they did learn of another individual that lived in a different apartment complex that was literally across the street from Stephen's complex, and that man's name is Tommy Swent. Nikki and Tommy worked together at the same correctional facility in Dayton, Ohio, and there were rumors that were swirling that Tommy was much more interested in Nikki than she was in him. Tommy had allegedly had feelings for Nikki and wanted to be more than just friends. Some labeled this as an obsession that he had with Nikki. And I don't think that this was something that Nikki was overly open about with her family and friends. It seems like this was something that she kind of kept to herself until it was revealed at her bridal shower in the most awkward way. Tommy Swent had sent over a gift to Nikki's bridal shower, and of course, being the bride, she's in front of everyone opening her gifts. And often at bridal showers, women get cute lingerie from their girlfriends, among other gifts for the house and the couple, and so on. Tommy had sent over a gift of lingerie for Nikki, and she opened it in front of everyone. This had everyone completely creeped out. To have a man, friend, or if you don't even want to call him a friend, but a co-worker, an acquaintance that is a male, sending the gift of lingerie to your bridal shower, that would make me so uncomfortable. And from the interviews with her family, they all seemed really bothered by it as well. And rightfully so. It just doesn't seem appropriate. When the authorities started to look into Tommy further, they found that not only did he have this weird obsession with Nikki, but he also was known to be violent with women. So they started zeroing in on Tommy, and when they went to speak with him at his home, he was not quite cooperative. Often the questions that were asked of him, he would half answer or kind of sidestep the question and go off subject. And because the police didn't have any kind of proof that Tommy was involved, they couldn't force him to talk. So he was just labeled a person of interest. As years went by and no sign of Nikki, her family remained hopeful that answers would come. In 2004, Nikki's family started to work with a missing persons organization that came together to offer up a $100,000 reward for information leading to Nikki. Their hope was with that kind of money that someone would talk. Someone that was told something would come forward to claim that money for themselves. But nobody did. On the five-year anniversary of Nikki's disappearance, her family, friends, and people within the community gathered at that laundromat to remember Nikki. The media was present, and Nikki's daughter Peyton, who was 14 years old at this point, made a public plea for her mom's safe return. And despite Nikki's family fighting for people to remember her and to continue to share her story, her case begins to fall through the cracks, and people started to forget. And we see this once more so often in these older missing persons cases. 
And as I've said a million times over, that is the reason why we do these Missy Mondays. And that is the reason why we focus on some of the stories that aren't as fresh and new. Of course, we do cover those as well. And if you follow me over on TikTok, you know that I heavily focus on the now stories of the missing. But it is so important to continue to share these stories and let the families know that their loved one isn't forgotten. However, in August of 2007, six years after Nikki vanished, the detectives working her case learned that Tommy Swent was now working as a police officer for Trotwood, which is a city near Dayton. The detectives in Richmond and Nikki's family were all surprised to hear this. That a man like this with a violent past and someone who had been labeled a person of interest in a missing persons case would be hired as a police officer. The Richmond detectives were not having it, and they had always felt like it was a big possibility that he was involved in Nikki's disappearance due to his lack of cooperation with them. So they called over to the Trotwood Police Department, and they were like, hey, you hired this man who is a person of interest in this woman's disappearance. And the Trotwood Police Department had no idea, so they approached Tommy and told him that he had two options. You either resign or we will begin the process of terminating you. And so he was forced to resign. But Tommy didn't stop there. Tommy then went to sue the city of Richmond and its police department. His lawyers argued during a press conference that Tommy was never told that he was a person of interest in Nikki's case. His lawyer stated that he was never identified as a suspect, a person of interest, nor was he ever charged with a crime. He said that Tommy was only questioned due to Nikki having been a friend that had gone missing and for no other reason. But the Richmond police say otherwise. They say that Tommy was well aware that he was a person of interest all along. Tommy's lawsuit fell flat and nothing came of it. But news coverage of this entire fiasco took place for months in both Richmond and in Dayton, and this actually sparked something that nobody expected. They had an anonymous caller that called into the Dayton PD, and this person had information about an unsolved murder of another woman, and they linked Tommy Swent to that case. In December 1991, 33-year-old Tina Marie Ivory was discovered deceased in a pile of brush wrapped in a blanket and duct taped. She had been beaten, strangled, and dumped there. The Dayton police were able to get a DNA sample from the blanket, but without a person to compare it to, they could do nothing with it. And in Tina's case, they had no suspects and no leads. So for 16 years, they held on to that DNA sample, hoping to be able to use it someday to link someone to the case. But whoever called in about Tommy being involved gave very minimal information, but they told authorities that they had to look into him. So when the Dayton police learned of Tommy's potential involvement, they called over to the Richmond police to see if they happened to have a sample of Tommy's DNA. And thankfully, they actually did have a sample of it, and they had just obtained it months before when the whole lawsuit thing came about. During the lawsuit, Tommy had been telling the media, his lawyers, and pretty much anyone who would listen that he has and will always fully cooperate with the police. And that was when the police for Richmond were like, okay, cool, 
then go ahead and give us a sample of your DNA. And being put on the spot like that after bragging about how cooperative he had been, he pretty much had no other choice than to get swabbed for his DNA. The Richmond police handed over that sample to the Dayton police, and they were able to match his sample of DNA to the DNA that was found on Tina Marie Ivory. When further examining the other evidence they had from Tina's crime scene, they also found a fingerprint that technology back in the early 90s didn't detect or pick up. And they were hoping that this would be the nail in the coffin that would 100% without a doubt place Tommy Swint at Tina Marie's crime scene. In order to know for sure, the detectives had to obtain Tommy's fingerprints, so they headed down to Alabama, where he had recently relocated to. They were able to bring him in for fingerprinting, and while there, Dayton police actually sat down with Tommy for questioning. They asked him if there was any chance that his DNA would be on Tina's body or anywhere near the crime scene. He denied that it was even a possibility. When confronted with the facts that they had proof that he was involved in her murder, he completely clammed up and told them that he was done talking. And because those fingerprints that they had just taken had yet to be examined and compared to the prints on the evidence from Tina Marie, Tommy was free to go. But ultimately, they would be a match. On February 3rd, 2010, nine years after Nikki had gone missing, a jury in Dayton, Ohio, indicts Tommy Swint on murder charges for the killing of Tina Marie. At 1 p.m. on that day, police in Alabama drove over to Tommy's house with lots of backup to finally arrest Tommy for Tina's murder. And everyone back in Indiana were hopeful that this was finally going to be the break that they needed. Tommy was finally going to come clean on what happened to Nikki now that he was already caught for another woman's murder. Or at least that was what they had hoped. Unfortunately, that was not what would happen. On February 3rd, 2010, the authorities arrive at Tommy Swint's home in Alabama to finally arrest him and formally charge him with the murder of Tina Marie Ivory. But as they approached the front door, a single gunshot rang out from inside the home. The authorities kicked down the door and found Tommy lying deceased on the living room floor with a gun still in his hand. He had taken his own life. The Richmond authorities and all of Nikki's friends and family were completely devastated to hear the news. Their dreams of getting answers from this man were completely squashed. And though his suicide was hard for them to handle, they also were very thankful that Tina Marie's family were able to finally get the closure because of Nikki. If Nikki had never gone missing, who knows if Tina Marie's case would have ever been solved. And we may never know what happened to Nikki. I will say that the Richmond Police Department states that they do have another person of interest that they believe could potentially hold answers, and that is a woman that Tommy had been romantically involved with, who had also worked at the correctional facility with Tommy and Nikki. I'm not sure what exactly they know about her or what she may or may not know, but this is something that was discussed in interviews with Crime Watch Daily. 
Nikki's sisters and authorities are hoping that whatever information that she holds is heavy on her and that she will finally come forward and hopefully give Nikki's family closure. Nikki's daughter was nine years old when she went missing. She is now an adult with her own children. Nikki has missed out on some huge milestones for Peyton and now for her grandchildren. It is so tragic that she never got her happily ever after with Bobby. And it's very heartbreaking that her mother, Barbara, passed away in July of 2020, one day before the 19th anniversary of Nikki's disappearance, without knowing what happened to her daughter. Barbara and the entire McCowan family have fought tirelessly for far too long for answers on what happened to Nikki. They deserve answers, and Nikki deserves to be brought home. Nikki McCowan was 28 years old when she went missing on July 22, 2001. If still alive today, she would now be 50 years old. Nikki was 5'2 and weighed 115 pounds. She was last known to be wearing a bright pink and purple floral swimsuit top, dark colored shorts, diamond earrings, and a white gold bracelet. She was driving a 1990 GMC Jimmy 4x4, which, as we know, has been recovered. Nikki is an African-American female with light brown hair and brown eyes. She has a small scar above her left eye, a small scar on her right side of her face, a scar on the top of her head, and a large scar on her left lower leg. If you or anyone you know has information, you can contact the Richmond Police Department at 765-983-7247. Crimeaholics, that is all the information that I have on today's case. If you're not already a part of our private Facebook group, make sure you search Crimeaholics Podcast Discussion Group on Facebook so you can join. In there, we share all information and pictures pertaining to the cases that we cover, and we also encourage all of our members to share all things true crime. You can also follow us over on Instagram at crimeaholics.podcast, and if you'd like more true crime content, you can follow me over on TikTok at the same username of crimeaholics.podcast. If you haven't already snagged yourself some Crimeaholics merch, check the link in the description of this episode. Our shop will be open for another month before we close it down until our next merch drop. So don't miss out on the opportunity to snag some Crimeaholics swag. Lastly, if you'd like to follow me personally on Instagram to see what I'm doing in life, you can find me over there at Crimeaholic. Crimeaholics, that is all for this week's Missing Monday. Until next time, be aware and take care.